Welcome everyone to the She Can Fix It podcast, a podcast consisting of interviews with female surgeons to highlight and empower the women of orthopedic surgery. I hope everyone and their family members are staying safe during this time. On this episode, we have a fantastic interview with Dr. Casey Humbird. Dr. Casey Humbird is an associate professor of orthopedic surgery and the chief of the foot and ankle division at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Dr. Humbert is not only an expert when it comes to foot and ankle surgery, but also medical ethics. Dr. Humbert has been on my list of surgeons to interview for a long time. With COVID-19 affecting us all, both in the hospital and at home, I thought now more than ever is the time to reflect on the ethical considerations of this pandemic. I had a great time speaking with Dr. Humbert, and I'm very excited to share our conversation. I hope you enjoy this episode of the She Can Fix It podcast with Dr. Casey Humbert. Dr. Casey Humbert, thank you so much for joining us on the She Can Fix It podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time during this coronavirus pandemic, and I hope you and your family are staying safe during this time. Yes, thank you so much. So the first question I have for you is if in your own words, can you describe your background, where you went to medical school, residency, fellowship, and beyond that? Yeah, sure. I was actually born in Michigan, so I cheer for the University of Michigan, even though I did no education there. I went to college in Philadelphia and then went to medical school in New York at Mount Sinai School of Medicine. I came to Johns Hopkins for my residency and then went across town for my fellowship at uh, Mercy Medical Center, and the fellowship was in foot and ankle. And then I came back home to Johns Hopkins, where I have been since finishing fellowship in 2014. Wow, that's amazing. So I do want to talk about foot and ankle surgery. You are my first uh, surgeon who specializes in foot and ankle surgery. So I was hoping that you can provide basically an overview of the type of conditions that you treat as a foot and ankle surgeon. So foot and ankle is, of course, the best specialty that you can do uh, because (laughs) unlike everybody else who has to super specialize and, you know, only take care of the left ring fingers, you know, spiral bands, we get to do everything. We only do it in the foot and the ankle. So I chose it because I loved everything. I loved peds. I loved reconstruction. I loved deformity. The only thing I didn't love was spine. Sorry to the spine surgeons. Um, And I loved that I got to still do scoping and fractures and uh, can do total joint replacements. I take care of um, anyone approaching skeletal maturity um, up into elderly folks. So I love that I still got to do kind of everything, but by being the expert in one part of the body. So that was super appealing to me. Um, I kind of have a split practice, I always say, because half of my stuff is at an ambulatory surgery center where I do most of my sports and stuff like bunions. And I do a fair bit of trauma up there too. And then I have the other half is hospital-based where I do my bigger reconstructions, joint replacements, and those types of surgeries. Nice. So when did you first become interested in foot and ankle surgery? Was it toward the beginning of your residency or was it toward the later years? Um, So I became interested in it when I think I was four years old and someone put bilateral casts on me for my uh, fairly severe metatarsus adductus, which probably these days I wouldn't have been casted, but I was casted from infancy 
on and my dad was an orthopedic resident at the time and um, so I was treated I probably had a mild club foot or a pretty severe metatarsus adductus so I always appreciated my feet and thought about feet more because my feet would kind of fatigue and get sore I think more than the average kids Mm -hmm. Um, and then when I was in uh, residency you know I remember talking to my dad a lot because that's what you do when you have a phone a consult of someone who's been in practice for 25 30 years And I really liked everything. And I liked peds a lot. I liked trauma a lot. I liked tumor a lot. I liked hip and knee replacement. And I really felt angst about, well, what do I do? I liked hand. I liked the tendon stuff in hand and the nerve stuff in hand. And um, so my dad said, well, why don't you want to do foot and ankle? You get to do all of it. And I hadn't rotated on my foot and ankle rotation at that time. I think Mm -hmm. like a lot of places... um, we rotated there a little bit later. So it wasn't something that you saw as much in your first or second year. And then once I rotated on it, I was like, oh my gosh, we get to do so many different things. And I am definitely um, ADHD. So as much as I love doing hip and knee replacement, the idea of doing one surgery for the rest of my life gives me chest pain. Um, And and I always, uh, there's a great story in one of the Malcolm Gladwell books about these surgeons who only do, I I think it's cholecystectomies, and they're actually family med trained, but they do one surgery perfectly. Mm -hmm. And they're like people who want to learn how to play Rachmaninoff's five and play it perfectly, but only play one piece of music, where I am definitely someone who would like to play all of the different music from pop to jazz to classical, like that's just me. So foot and ankle seem to fit the, I don't know what today holds, and I'm going to see so much different pathology. And part of it might be having a dad who is a true generalist, um, which doesn't really exist so much anymore. Um, uh, He did a lot of sports in his younger years, and then his career kind of transitioned to doing a ton of hips and knees on all the patients he'd done their ACLs 25 years earlier. Um, (laughs) And that, that was very appealing to feel like I could do anything. Nice. Now, there are some myths slash qualms associated with foot and ankle surgery. Um, For example, I've heard a student complaining about foot and ankle surgery by stating, I don't want to touch feet all day. What is your response to that statement? You know, I always will say if it's not for you, it's not for you. But I also think it's very funny because I have a good friend who's an obstetrician gynecologist and she was like, how can you touch feet all day? And I was like, oh, my goodness, think about what you're touching all day. Feet, really? Um, So to each his own. Uh, That being said, the majority of my patients have very, very nice feet. And amidst the pandemic, it's been really funny that all these folks keep apologizing for their lack of a pedicure and are all embarrassed. And so I think that I'm very fortunate that my patients really take care of their feet um, and and are pre-appointment foot washers. God bless them. I have to also admit, as someone who... um, is very focused on how to serve and serving others. There is always something a bit uh, biblical about caring for people's feet and washing them. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I, on the occasion where there's a foot that's really not well kept, I just, um, I, I think biblical or I think of how Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers so famously <laughs> washed uh, the policeman's feet in the pool uh, and okay. yeah. I will also say for full disclosure, um, I broke my nose twice in childhood. And so I'm fairly anosmic. 
so I can't smell them. So this is both my superpower and my curse because there's been horrible wounds that I can't smell. So every time I've hired a PA, I've confirmed that they have a very delicate nose um, because oh I will God. I will be in a room with like a wound that apparently smells terrible. Like other people can't be in the room and I will have no idea. And I'll be like, does it smell? Because I feel that's clinically important to document. And, right. and my first PA, she was like literally retching in the hallway. She had such a delicate nose. She'd be like, I can't believe you can't smell that. Oh so, um, yeah, someone could be in DKA and smelling like ketones and I'll have no idea. I'll just be smiling and nodding. <laughs> but it's phenomenal when you have babies and whoever smells it has to change the diaper. My husband changed that rule pretty quickly. But for a while, <laughs> it was very effective that I got out oh of all God. the diaper changing. So. Oh, gosh. How did you break your nose twice? Uh, it's mortifying. Um, one time was a basketball straight to the nose, and that one kind of uh, – the, the other time I was the only girl at soccer camp, and I was flexible. And the coach said, try and swing your knee and get your knee to – swing your legs and try and get your knee to touch your nose. And I did. You were very successful. Yeah, there was blood everywhere. My mom showed up and wanted to know um, – what was going on, you know, who had been torturing her baby. And then I'll never forget her just laughing when she oh found out what God. had happened. That's so, hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Feel free to edit that out of the podcast. <laughs> no, that's going, that's staying in. That is staying in. Oh my God. So my next thought about uh, foot and ankle surgery, at least some of the rotations that I have done is that there are a significant amount of adversities when dealing with folks who have diabetes and who have diabetic uh, neuropathy and these foot ulcers. And so, and many of these patients do require amputations later on down the line. And so what have been your treatment strategies when dealing with the adversities many diabetic patients bring to your clinic? So um, I'm very fortunate to work at a place like Johns Hopkins, where if you can do a quality improvement project and make an argument for more resources, especially if those resources will eventually save the health system some money, um, the health system will get behind you. So we did a study that showed that um, the patients who are receiving amputations were, um, like we could kind of predict who it was, that they were right. not coming in right away needing an amputation, and they were taking a ton of costly resources. And so we have been able to develop a multidisciplinary care team. So mm -hmm. I actually only see diabetic feet if I'm being contacted by vascular or the wound care nurses or the infectious disease doctors who have already been managing them and then think they need an orthopedic procedure. So right. I have done maybe two amputations in the past six years of my career wow. for diabetes. Um, part of it is that my vascular partners do most of them. So if they have poor mm -hmm. blood flow, they're going to take them on. But the other part is that by having, and I really have to credit the infectious disease doctors and wound care nurses, by having people who right. know what they're doing and do a multidisciplinary approach and get them in to diabetes management, we're able to uh, reconstruct a lot more of them or have them ideally never even hit me. Um, right. And I think it's uh, prevention is cheap but not sexy. Uh, and yeah. trying to get the health system to recognize that. Um, we're not perfect. We still have a long way to go. Um, I, I do other work in amputations that we might talk about later where I really argue, or I'm starting to argue that we're underutilizing amputation. Diabetes mm -hmm. is different because so many of these patients will never mobilize 
on a transtibial amputation in contrast right, to right. a lot of young healthy people who have a traumatic mangled extremity who will do um, arguably better um, if I chop right. off somebody's leg, they are often not walking again because their BMIs are high. They're starting out from a poor functional capacity. And so I, I go pretty far down the road of reconstruction with these patients because I don't want to condemn them to a wheelchair. Hmm. Very cool. I do want to transition um, to your passion with medical ethics. When I was uh, looking through um, your background and everything, I found that you have numerous publications with medical ethics. And so I was wondering, why did you become interested in the field of medical ethics? So I've always had kind of a unique background for an orthopedic surgeon in general. So I was a dual major in college, and I was an urban studies major and mm -hmm. a bio major. And at that time, I did a lot of research in health disparities, looking at birth weight differences between black and white babies in Philadelphia. And I'd always had an interest and in, I really enjoyed the ethics work um, that everybody does in medical school. And my medical school had a partnership with Oxford University um, to do a fellowship. So I spent a month there um, and develop relationships and a mentor who um, is still very close to me. And that was really mm -hmm. a turning point for me personally and professionally. Um, so when I was a resident, we had some um, elective time, and I actually spent that working on an ethics project. Uh, after fellowship, I decided um, when I chose to do academics, everyone, when you choose academics, you try and ideally choose an academic path. And I went to my chairman, who was supportive of my path being atypical and being medical ethics. So I... Um, hmm in a month will graduate with my master's in bioethics. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, I was not planning on attending graduation because I was, wasn't going to cancel the OR day. And right. now I'm going to make everyone go to graduation because oh it's going to be gosh. online. Um, oh, and that's fantastic. Yeah. So, so I've been just doing kind of rigorous or what I hope to be rigorous medical ethics work um, for the past several years. And um, it's neat. I'm always kind of the one person doing it in orthopedics. So, uh, there's not a ton of surgeons doing ethics work. And right. when I go to the big national meetings, it's fun. I'm the token orthopod always. Um, <laughs> so I, but that's, that's great. And I think uh, really in current times and talking to people, uh, I think now after this epidemic, folks appreciate that having, a medical ethics background has some value. Um, and right. so I certainly would never work, wish for a crisis to show that my work has value. Um, mm -hmm. But I was talking to someone and they're like, whoever thinks about this? And I was like, me, me, yeah. I've thought about this for years. <laughs> <laughs> they oh were like, gosh. oh my gosh, like how do we allocate resources? And I was like, it's all trolley problems. This is what I've <laughs> literally been sitting in class for three hours a week arguing about for the past right. four years. So it's a it's definitely scary when you see all of mm -hmm. your theoreticals um, be put into action. Um, right. I am faculty at the Berman Institute of Bioethics at Hopkins, which is, I, I think, maybe the largest bioethics group in the world in terms of number of wow. faculty working together in medical ethics. Um, mm -hmm. Oxford might come close, but I, I think that um, they're the biggest. And so we've 
uh, had conversations along these lines about resource allocation, scarce resources, what do we do for a long time? Um, mm-hmm. And so I think that we've been able to have good conversations where there wasn't the same pressures there are now. And hopefully that will make for a more thoughtful response. True, true. Other than this pandemic, how has this passion, how has medical ethics impacted your day-to-day patient care, so to speak? Um, So I will be very honest with patients, and I think we all try and be honest, but often patients will say to me, you know, well, why did that other surgeon, I'm at a tertiary place, so I'll often get a lot of second opinions, and they'll say, well, they told Mm -hmm. me that my perineal tendonitis had to be treated with surgery, and I'll say, well, no, it never has to be, you know, our language matters. Uh, you should start with physical therapy first. I'm very open with patients when there's two ways to treat it, that I get paid more for treating an Achilles tendon rupture with surgery than I do without. Um, mm-hmm. And and having those conversations with folks about it, um, I, it's also always in the back of my head about how to use resources in an ethical and sound manner. Um, I try and be very aware of my implicit biases I have a unique practice in that um, I take care of the least of these and those with much. And I try and always be doing a gut check to make sure I'm treating them um, fairly, you know, mm-hmm. and fairness does not mean that people who are VIPs or envision themselves as VIPs get my cell phone number and other patients don't get a phone call back. You know, fairness right. often dictates kind of the opposite. Mm-hmm. Um so I, I think those are ways that my theoretical work, I try and let it influence um, mm-hmm. my, my clinical side. Nice. Well, since I do have a literally an expert on medical ethics, I really did want to talk to you about the current crisis that is COVID-19. And so I have some topics that I'd like to kind of talk to you about. And the first being the situation in which um, some MLB baseball pitchers um, were getting Tommy John surgery in the final week of March. And just to be clear for our listeners, March 13th was the date in which the American College of Surgeons recommended that surgeons should minimize, postpone, or cancel all elective surgery amid the spread of coronavirus. And this was shared the next day with the U.S. Surgeon General. Um, Of course, this is a recommendation, but not a legal mandate. But if you talk about uh, the New York Mets pitcher, um, he had his surgery on March 26, which was after an executive order from the governor had prohibited um, these sorts of elective surgeries. And so um, I was hoping that you can talk about the ethical considerations that folks need to think about when you're talking about elective surgeries, whether that's Tommy John or whether that's uh, total hip replacements during this pandemic. So in a word, none of, no, it's not ethical, right? This isn't a complex ethical dilemma. If you want to see my thoughts a little bit more eloquently laid out other than Duh, this is unethical. Um, I, <laughs> I have some pieces coming out in both JBJS and JAOS about the ethics of this as a shameless oh, self-promotion. Um, but, you know, when you're trying to look at the ethical considerations of this situation, I talked to one of my re- mentors, who is Ruth Faden, who founded the Berman Institute of Bioethics. 
And Mm -hmm. from a resource standpoint, of course, elective surgery goes away. And that's what she said. You know, there's not really a conversation that happens around vestigial procedures. Um, It's a pandemic. We need all the PPE. We need all of the physicians who can care for folks to be available. Um, This isn't what is there to debate. So um, generally, you're going to perform surgery based on the needs of an individual patient, right? So we look at beneficence. So trying to promote the good of that particular patient and everything's focused on the best interests of that patient. And that's balanced by autonomy in terms of does this patient understand the risks? But when you're in the midst of a pandemic, you're not supposed to be looking at individual patients. You're supposed to be trying to do what's right for everybody. And so when you have scarce resources, you have to really be saying what surgeries get to proceed. And elective surgeries are never going to get to proceed amidst a national emergency. Um, I have to also say, and I do not know the surgeon who performed either of the surgeries. And for full disclosure, my dog's name was Fenway, and a, Chris Sale is a Red Sox player. <laughs> and I, the Mets are my National League team because my husband grew up cheering for the Mets. So right. it breaks my heart that these teams are the ones who did it. And I don't know the surgeon personally. Mm-hmm. But the argument he made was incredibly troubling to me because he responded by talking about a patient's livelihood which is troubling Mm -hmm. for a few reasons, right? Because yes, it might prolong his livelihood, but we're not talking about livelihood. We're talking about lives, right? So we shouldn't even be talking about livelihoods. Our our unemployment rate went from 3% to 10% in like a week. So a lot of folks have already lost their livelihoods. And then Mm -hmm. you complicate it further by the fact that Noah Syndergaard is a multimillionaire. If you Google, he has 10 to $15 million in the bank. So if you're looking at this from a justice perspective, if you're into preserving livelihoods, shouldn't we pre- be preserving livelihoods of people who have like zero dollars saved in the bank? Right, right. Why, why does and he win? Yes. And, right. and other, you know, like Oklahoma City um, basketball team, they used half of the available tests. I'm sorry, the Utah Jazz used half of Oklahoma City's available COVID tests when they tested all of their players and personnel. Like, mm-hmm. what, why did they use half of a city's supply of tests? I think we've all, like, recognized that we do VIP things for patients and, you know, but that's crazy. Right. That's crazy. And there are physicians who participated in that and we're failing at our gatekeeper role we get a lot of privileges in practice but when we do this you you no longer have any moral high ground yes yeah i what what's great is that i you you have a twitter account your handle is at at casey humbert and one of you had a tweet about kind of this situation and one of my favorite quotes from that was that you said it is time for doctors to take off their clinical ethics hats and put on the big boy slash girl thank you public (laughs) health hats and so i was wondering if first of all thank you for tweeting this and second of all what is the difference between clinical ethics and public health ethics So clinical ethics is what we think about as our day-to-day usual medical ethics or clinical ethics. And that relationship is between a clinician and an individual patient. Public health ethics is in 
um, happening at the one-to-one relationship. It's between health systems, institutions, and governments and their relationship within communities. So we're not talking about usual bedside decision-making. Instead, we're looking at kind of large-scale resource allocation um, and how to maximize the good. Now, it's not pure good maximization. Um, Well, there are some folks who argue just save as many lives as possible. Um, And we're having lots of those arguments now about, right, ventilators, et cetera. Um, uh, But you have to also think about how do you define the collective good if you know that um, being African-American strongly correlates with having worse health outcomes in general because of uh, systemic racism and where people live and less access to health care. So I'm not someone who's just like, let's save as many lives as possible because then we're going to end up um, worsening inherent disparities. But in general, you're trying to ground how do we efficiently maximize our resources in a fair manner to -hmm. try and create the maximum amount of help, which in general, it's really dangerous if doctors think that way. And in fact, I would argue even during a pandemic, we don't want our doctors thinking that way. We want our doctor at our bedside, not thinking, are you the best person to receive this ventilator? Or is there someone else who might have a greater contribution to the world or society who should get it? So Mm -hmm. public health ethics ideally doesn't happen at the bedside. It happens through structural programs, whether it be a hospital or whether it be a health system whether it is the government saying this is how we're going to allocate resources and the mm-hmm. people who decide how we do it should be anonymous. Right. The trouble is that as clinicians, you can't be like, well, Chris Sale is my patient. Noah Syndergaard is my patient. And so to heck with these huge national guidelines and state guidelines telling me what to do. My only role is to advocate for my patient. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we have to observe what the public health ethics require, which is stopping elective surgery and not trying to smudge it and pretend that because somebody makes a lot of money, one man's elective surgery is another man's completely necessary life-saving surgery. Right. Yeah. What's unfortunate is that, you know, the data has come out that um, basically those folks who are in lower socioeconomic standards, those persons of color are literally being hit by this virus in a disproportionate way. Of course they are, right? You know, of course they are. (laughs) And so what, like, how do you, how do you, it's like public health, like ethically, you understand that, how do you tackle that situation? And how do you divorce the resources or what have you? And maybe this is more public health rather than public health ethics, but in terms of how do you view that? Well, You know, it's a tragedy in however many years in the making, right? So Mm -hmm. uh, my work has focused on disparities where, you know, I focused more on bundled payments and how um, that's going to impact access to hips and knees and that you can basically predict your likelihood of having a high BMI or poorly controlled diabetes based on your your race. And we're now looking into you can basically predict your likelihood of receiving a total joint based on your zip code. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, place matters, person matters. So I think we need systemic fixes 
And I think that's the, the only fair way to do it long term. So if this pandemic means that suddenly other people are aware of the things that the disparities researchers have been screaming about for 20 years, and it mm-hmm. gets people to care a little bit more that your zip code predicts your life, that would be awesome. Because yeah. although some of these disparities exist in other countries, we are number one with this, right? So right. it's it's the American way, and I would love for it to not be. Yeah. So my hope is that, as Rahm Emanuel said, and as I continually quote, never let a good crisis go to waste. If this mm-hmm. is what helps us recognize how um, we operate with no margin, um, no reserve in our health system for an emergency, we mm-hmm. have devalued subsets of the population and they're just permitted to have worse health. And if, if there's a national awakening about this is the way things are, and if we as an American people say we are not going to permit this anymore, I think that, I don't know if I can say that that would be worth it because we're going to lose a lot of lives, but at right. least we would let some good come out of it. Or as sure. another wise woman once said, when life gives you lemons, stick them in your bra. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, That's amazing. Um, With the current pandemic, physicians are turning more towards telemedicine and telehealth. Um, And I think that this is telemedicine is great in that we're able to reach folks who are, you know, across large geographic regions. But I think that there are some aspects that need to be addressed. And I think that For example, not everybody has the ability to access this technology. Not everybody has an iPhone, a tablet, or the internet. And then some folks also don't have the skill set to be able to adequately access these apps. And so I was hoping that you can talk about, you know, what are the ethical considerations that need to be thought about when we think of the people who are not getting access to care during this time? So I think first off, it's really important to specify what we mean when we're talking about telemedicine or telehealth, because the reality is we've been doing some version of it for a while, mainly with like interpreters being rolled in on a video screen to help. And the goal of telehealth is to maximize efficiency. And in fact, I think a lot of telehealth has happened to try and improve disparities mainly through physician-to-physician interactions. So right now everyone's thinking about telemedicine in terms of a patient with a physician, but where we've actually been fairly successful is instead physician-to-physician or physician-to-nurse interactions where um, you have intensivists helping people in rural hospitals manage acutely ill patients and transfer them. And I think we have been under-talking about how we could use telemedicine during this pandemic. If I were emperor of the world, I would have 20% of our ICU intensivists, anesthesiologists hold up, protected, not allowed to touch a patient right now, and instead have me in the room with them Skyping with me and managing you know, another 15 patients so that they're right. all staying healthy and away from us. Um, and so I think we're potentially underutilizing telemedicine in a different way. In terms of individual patients, I think it's super tricky. And um, I do foot and ankle, right? So I've had a week of people trying to figure out how to lift their foot up into a computer screen or angle their phone down. (laughs) My young patients are digital natives and find this super easy. Um, I had a different patient who 
you know, didn't know what a CD-ROM was to upload x-rays. And, you know, um, thank goodness so many of my patients have children who can walk them through it. Um, So I think it's tricky. I think also, and this is one of those things that you find it out and it blows your mind. um, If you do a phone call only, so almost everybody has a phone. Mm -hmm. But if you do a phone call only visit, you have to downcode it so that you get paid less for doing it. So you get paid more for a telemedicine visit with a video than with a telephone alone. Um, So obviously we're asked to do the right thing, but it'd be great if insurance companies and government healthcare weren't putting in disincentives to caring for people who may only have a phone. Um, And I, I, so there's like systemic fixes But then there's like logical fixes, which is, you know, clearly you are limited in what you can do on the phone. But if you spend a half hour on the phone with a patient, that's a half hour of your time. And you shouldn't have to downcode for lesser services because you couldn't see them. Hmm. Um, But I, I think that the lack of access to technology has been a big moral dilemma during this crisis. Um, I am blessed to have, you know, high speed broadband internet. And my Mm -hmm. daughter has been in class from 9am to 2.30pm every day um, at teleschool, right? Because I'm I'm blessed that she goes to a school that has that capability. And they send her home with an iPad and work. And so, you know, her advantages compared to many other kids, even in my same zip code, is is stratospheric and i also think what's been fascinating is all these um telecom companies which has always said they couldn't afford to open up their networks to everybody now during a pandemic have all opened up their public access networks so like clearly they were able to if we really cared about everyone having access to broadband internet we could do that it's just whether or not we choose to so again Mm -hmm. never let a good crisis go to waste hopefully we we maybe push on policy here and say, even in low-income neighborhoods, you have to have free publicly available broadband access. Mm-hmm. And that's something that we just decide as a country is important for us to do. Yeah. And some say that like any new drug, there may be some adverse effects due to the use of telemedicine and such. And so how would you advise physicians who are currently in this pandemic to do no harm as it relates to telemedicine? That's a really good question. I I think that it's important to recognize and know the background of your patient and know whether or not they're going to be savvy enough to respond in the affirmative if something is problematic. Um, so, I find that the patients who are most nervous about whether or not their incision okay is okay is often not the patients who need to be. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times the patients who are like, oh, no, I think it's fine, are those who um, it's not, but they don't have enough background or they don't have a friend who's a nurse who comes over to look at it to reassure them type situation. So um, to me, it, I think that with the telemedicine epidemic, it's perhaps a time that it's okay to be a little more paternalistic and a little more, okay, is there anyone with you that I can talk to that's looking at your wound and make sure they think it looks okay? 
And I've been very aggressive with trying to get visiting nurses out to my patients who I'm not convinced are okay. Um, so trying to do no harm in terms of don't let them come to an ER and try and keep right. them out of my office and ask them to do things that might put them at risk, but trying to work through ways to get them uh, more resources at home. And I, I've been, I, I have uh, been giving out my email address more than I usually do because a mm-hmm. lot of folks can email even if they don't have um, my chart type things right. if they don't have right. EMR. And um, I rarely give out my cell phone because I always have my phone on me, but I occasionally have been giving out my phone too. Nice, nice. Um, the next ethical topic that I wanted to talk to you about was that regarding occupational health and safety. And there's no doubt that with the current pandemic that there's been an increase in occupational health risks. And some of the things that, um, you know, in researching, because I wanted to sound a little bit smarter because I have absolutely no idea what medical ethics <laughs> is. And so I tried to do some research. Um, and so there was this really cool paper in Turkey that talked about the ethics of occupational health and safety. And my favorite quote from this article is that individual consent by a worker to an occupation or workplace risk presupposes that workers are fully informed with regard to the hazards and risks that they will face in the workplace. And I think that for me, what's interesting about this coronavirus um, pandemic is that we technically don't fully know the hazards and risks of this disease. Um, We know that healthcare workers can die and have died from it, but we don't know you know, the long-term effects of folks who have been on ventilators and those sorts of things. And so I was wondering how you have viewed this as someone who is an expert in medical ethics in terms of those, not only doctors, but the nurses, the respiratory therapists, the environmental workers, all those healthcare workers who are literally risking their health every single day as they walk into the hospital. Well, I would start with two quotes, which aren't mine. One was in an editorial in the New York Times, um, which was something along the lines of, you do have a duty to serve, but you have a responsibility to not be a martyr. Mm. Um, Which I think is really eloquent and there's a lot to dig into there. Um, I do think we have a responsibility to take care of our patients, but you also have a responsibility to look at yourself as a precious resource. And maybe as an orthopedic surgeon, I'm a little bit less of a precious resource than my good friends who are anesthesiologists, but I still know more than the average person about how to help people not die. Mm -hmm. And so if I rush in without PPE on because someone's coding and I am just oh so excited to do chest compressions and feel useful, then that is unethical because I could be not only... Um, taking myself out as a resource for the health system, but potentially becoming a patient, which is going to take even more resources. So I would argue that um, clinicians of any type, whether they are respiratory therapists to janitors, we are all taking care of patients, right? So no one um, is forced to be a janitor in a hospital even if we aren't looking at environmental services the same way as doctors and nurses, I think that's a real failure. They -hmm. have chosen to work somewhere where what they're cleaning is more dangerous to them than if they worked at McDonald's. That's just a fact. 
And there's a lot of people being heroes right now. But you need to put on your PPE first. You need to make sure you're protecting yourself. I think we're all thinking about how do we take care of our families. Um, I have my own little ritual and I, you know, go into the garage <laughs> and my daughters make fun of me because they're saying that they're seeing a lot of mom's undies lately, but I like dash through the house with my clothes in a bag and go right, right into the shower when I come in because I don't want to share with them whatever may have been shared with me. Um, mm -hmm. And we're, we're doing more air kisses. Um, so I, I think that's the first quote that's really important. The other one, um, which is from the House of God, which the fat man, as, it, as he was called in the House of God, always said, first take your own pulse before you run into a code, which was kind of first do a self-check. If you are someone who has poorly controlled diabetes, severe lung disease, the things that even though we don't know a ton, we know some, I, I think that you can be opting out right now. It gets into privacy concerns about how do we let people opt out. But I think mm -hmm. if there's a voluntary situation, um, which is ideal, where the hospital says who can volunteer, I think it's fair for the young, healthy people to step up. Mm -hmm. um, so trying to determine protected classes. Uh, pregnancy has always been a protected class. I don't know that that's appropriate in this pandemic, and we won't know until we have more data. Clearly, mm -hmm. in the if it were Zika, yeah, pregnant women shouldn't be around it. But right now, it doesn't look like it's horribly vicious to pregnant women. So if people choose to opt out, I think that's fine. But I don't know that I'd agree with a paternalistic system that said pregnant women aren't allowed to serve if they so chose. Mm -hmm. um, I think that that gets into its own problematic components that pregnancy yeah. often does, which is its own separate podcast. I won't go there and you should get yes. people who are experts in that if you wanted to ever do that one. Um, but I, I think the responsibility to not only care for your patients, but a responsibility to first care for yourself. If people choose not to volunteer, which I think is a real possibility, I think the notion of compulsory service gets to be challenging. AMA guidelines on this are fairly clear, um, and I'm not going to be able to quote them back, but essentially after the HIV AIDS epidemic where a lot of physicians refused to take care of patients, the AMA code of ethics was changed to say, yeah, you do have an obligation to take care of patients um, mm -hmm. with infectious disease. So I think um, I, I agree with those guidelines, um, but I would, of course, a prefer a voluntary standard. Um, right. I will say that I'm bothered by all these comparisons to a doctor draft because um, by definition, if you serve in the military, they're going to cover your health care for life. Right. They're going to pay for your educational debt. You're going to get hazard pay. Um, mm -hmm. And so I, I don't like when folks call physicians heroes because we're so used to caring for others and putting ourselves out there that, that you know, it, it doesn't seem right to me that we have the S&P going up 500 points yesterday while unemployment hit new record highs. And we have physicians and nurses and other people on the healthcare team who are getting their pay cut or not getting paid who are still mm -hmm. doing this. It doesn't mean that I wouldn't do the same. But I, I think you can say you celebrate them for doing it, but we don't, I don't think we take the term hero and then say, okay, that's all we need. You're allowed to keep on 
taking advantage of the fact, and, and the health system, let's be honest, the health system in general takes advantage of the fact that most people who go into medicine are deeply altruistic and want to do good. Right. Um, right. And so I, I feel obligated to call that out and say, yeah, that's amazing that we're so amazing, but it doesn't mean it's right when when uh, governments and health systems and you know, society in general takes advantage of that. I think it's awesome that people are clapping in the streets of New York. I'd much rather they donated their N95s. Yeah. No, and I think it's, it, what's unfortunate is I think that this is taking advantage, you know, as you said, of the fact that people who go into medicine, who ser- choose to serve as a nurse and all those sorts of things, they want to help people, even if it's at their own risk. And I think it's, you know, when you talk about like hazard pay, and those sorts of things. What's funny is that uh, one of my friends had asked, is your program going to give you hazard pay? And I literally, I, I was like, what is that? I mm-hmm. had no idea that such a thing even existed. And I think the idea of residents um, getting hazard pay, I think it's something that I, I don't even think would likely happen or what have you. So it, it's just, it's We're so used to a system where you work right. 80 plus hours a week for not amazing money, right? Right, right. We're, we're, so and just... it's extremely hierarchical. So we're like the military in certain ways, but I don't know that we follow the same. There's not an overarching um, philosophy or structure that mm-hmm. supports more dangerous situations. And, and I've seen a lot of people saying, oh, you think what we're doing is so great? Why don't you forgive my loans? And right. I, it's outside the purview of kind of my expertise but I would love for us to start thinking innovatively. There was a wonderful article in JAMA by Josh Sharfstein about have all the first year med students defer their year and do a year of service to help us with this pandemic. Mm-hmm. And just, I, I think this is a great opportunity to think big and bold and different right. and reestablish a public health infrastructure so that we're not having to all put on our superhero hats. That being said, I love my Wonder Woman mask that my mom made me, and I will shout her out on the podcast. Uh, Well done. Well done. I know I have my Wonder Woman scrub cap, so I've been busting that out. Um, Well, this has been amazing. I do want... Oh, wow. That's awesome. I'm showing it to you. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. I also have my Incredibles one, which says no capes, so it's hard to choose. Oh, gosh. Yeah, no, I I wouldn't... I think you could just wear them both at the same time and just like alternate throughout the day. Um, I do want to talk to you about the future. And I know that once we get out of this pandemic, I think it's going to be an interesting time in which we are catching up on all of the elective cases that have been postponed as well as continuing to serve our patients. But what are your future goals and projects clinically in research as well as within medical ethics? So I I have to be honest, right now my brain is totally stuck in the present moment of just trying to support my family, residents, my partners, and the staff through the pandemic. Um, But moving forward, I really can't wait to see my patients again and be able to hug my patients, which um, I've always been teased by one of my partners that um, it looks like a Parks and Recreation episode in my clinic because everyone's constantly hugging, and I'm okay with that. Um, I... I am excited about building more at the intersection of medical ethics and orthopedics. Um, I am optimistic that after this pandemic, people will see even more how what I do makes sense within the context. And so I'm selfishly excited about that. I have a lot of ongoing projects that um, 
I'm getting to mentor some amazing medical students and residents on projects on the ethical use of opioids and orthopedic surgery and how to Mm -hmm. not just prescribe less, but to prescribe better and to make sure that that is done in a fair and just manner. Um, I'm working quite a bit around the management of mangled extremities and um, Mm. amputation versus reconstruction and looking at mixed motivations there. And, um, you know, uh, I think I'm starting to form an argument that maybe we amputate too little. Um, Like from a cost benefit access way um, or more of just like them getting back to their lives? So Dr. Sig Hansen wrote a great GBGS editorial in the 80s about recommending that legs be amputated as soon as patients could comprehend it in a mangled extremity because otherwise you got the disability, depression, divorce. He had all these Ds that occurred. Um, And I think even though outcomes are equivalent at two years, there's two years that happen in between. And I don't know that outcomes are equivalent if you take in those two years of harm. Um, I also am trying to do some work looking at decisional regret and the sunk cost fallacy, which Mm -hmm. I suspect, um, based on some early work I'm doing um, with interviews that uh, people have done as part of the metric project, it seems to me that patients um, hang on to a leg because they've spent all this time trying to reconstruct it, even if it's not a functional leg for them. Um, and, uh, and then, of course, we get paid more to reconstruct, which we don't ever talk about. And it's super right. fun. Like, I love doing limb reconstruction. Right. Uh, so that's kind of an area that I'm uh, just trying to really build up in my research area. And I'm still I'm also doing some work on bundled payments um, mm. and looking at the impact of those. Um, we're about to start uh, our database project looking at that in the um, end-stage renal disease population and did the Medicare bundled payments program cut off access for patients who have had um, kidney transplants uh, because they're very high risk for complications. Right. But they also can't be optimized out of having had their kidney transplant. Um, so yeah. So that's, that's some of the things that I'm working on. Um, and then I'm spoiled. I have a core column and I have the world's best editor ever in Seth Leopold. And so oh, nice. once a quarter, I get to write an ethics piece on whatever, whatever strikes my fancy. Um, oh. So that's that's my outlet for, oh, I'm just thinking about this. Let me write about this. Um, oh, wow. So awesome. Yeah. Very cool. Um, I do know that you have, you know, a pandemic to get to and you know, time <laughs> to spend with your family and everything. Um, so I do want to get very, into- This is Baking Friday. So yes. I know. Yeah, baking we have Friday, to go- What are you guys baking? Um, so I we're, we're going to make a German chocolate cake as well oh, wow. as blondie brownies in case the German chocolate cake doesn't pan out. <laughs> Back oh up my God. <laughs> this is like the new freshman 15, but it's the COVID-19, right? It, it, it is- it is substantial, and uh, I had hoped to get back to college weight by my 40th birthday in two months, and that is not happening. So we're just going all in on dessert. We're just like, oh my gosh, that's awesome. I do want to ask you the final five, which sure. is this, the same five questions I ask every guest on the She Can Fix It podcast. And so my first final five question for you is, what is your favorite procedure to perform and why? Oh, 
I love Achilles and sports surgeries, but if I had to do like one procedure for the rest of my life, it would be severe ankle and hind foot deformity case. Mm. Why? Super challenging and you'll never be perfect at it. Mm. So I, and like then it's kind of a, a cheater answer, right? Because then like occasionally I can pop a total ankle in there. So it's not really just right. one surgery. So I'm, I'm cheating. <laughs> You're cheating the answer. That's awesome. Um, what are your go-to topics for grand round presentations? Um, so I have a few kind of regular foot and ankle talks, but my favorite go-to is um, kind of a general ethics talk for orthopedic surgery audiences giving an introduction to trolley problems. And so I get to have a clip from The Good Place, which is my favorite TV show, um, which includes a real life trolley problem. Um, so anytime I can have Ted Danson and Kristen Bell join me in a grand rounds, mm-hmm. it's a good day. Oh my gosh. Can you ex- expand on that? Like, what is that? So the trolley problem is this classic philosophy problem of you are standing and a trolley is about to run over and kill five people who are tied to the track, but you can flip a switch and instead it only kills one person. Do you flip the switch? And, um, and then there's lots of different plays on the trolley problem. So The Good Place, which is a show all about moral philosophy, but I will also say it's an awesome show, so don't let that turn you away. But no, I've seen The Good Place. I love Kristen Bell. She's fantastic. So there's, um, in The Good Place, there's a scene where a, the, the moral philosopher is explaining trolley problems and Ted Danson and his character is like, well, let's stop making this theoretical. So he puts them on a trolley and they plow into people. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it's very fun to explain this and then to show the scene. Um, I highly recommend everyone Google it. Yes. Just yeah, Google no, the good place trolley problem. Um, and if you don't want to watch the show after that, there, you know, you and I probably yeah. should not have drinks and dinner and wine. <laughs> no, it's an amazing. I, she's just fantastic. So I love her. She is. Um, I know. Uh, what is your favorite story slash memory as an orthopedic surgeon? So I think the moment that I decided I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon was, um, I think I was 10 years old and, uh, my dad's an orthopedic surgeon and we were, I was actually getting in the car to go with my mom to a friend's house and we heard a scream and my dad, who at the time was a runner, my mom got in the car and my dad ran and they ran to the screaming, um, and a lawnmower had run over the leg of our neighbor's, uh, four-year-old son. And, um, so it was, a, you know, it was obviously a mangled extremity type injury. And I remember my dad just ever so calmly asking me to please grab him a magazine and could he have my hair tie and him fashioning a splint out of a magazine with a hair tie and then EMS showing up and him bossing them around and explaining what they were going to do and him hopping in the ambulance and just kind of just doing it. And that was the moment that I was like, I want to be the person who can make splints out of magazines and hair ties and bosses everyone around. So um, wow. that was that was the moment that I realized he was like the coolest human being in the world and that I wanted to do something like that where I was the person who ran towards the screaming and could fix things. Yeah. Oh, that's an amazing story. I think that's one of the 
one of the better stories I think that I've oh, heard. I'll, I'll tell him to listen to the podcast then. Yes, no, you should. You should. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, what are your favorite activities outside of the operating room as well as outside of medicine? Um, so as I mentioned earlier, my kids and I enjoy baking together, but my family yes. is my favorite and we love to eat and we love to travel. And so with COVID-19, we've been baking because we love to eat. Um, and as soon as we're allowed to start traveling again, we, we had a big trip canceled by the epidemic, as does everybody else. Um, mm-hmm. So obviously, in perspective, not that big of a deal. Um, but we want to get get back out there and keep on playing and seeing the world. Nice. Um, nice. Where have been your favorite places to go to? Um, my daughter argues between Hawaii and going to London and getting to see Harry Potter studio oh. tour. So, yeah, you should you should tell her I am from Hawaii. And so Hawaii is always going to be the winner in that one. Yeah. So when we we stepped off the airplane and she saw the palm trees and smell the air, and it's not even like a nice airport. But she said, Mom, this is paradise. Why does anyone ever leave here? (laughs) (laughs) I know. And then you come here to the East Coast and it's gray. I know. Nine months out of the year. I know. She's asked why she hasn't gotten to go back yet. And I'm like, you were there 18 months ago and you're eight. Really? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. My final question for you is what advice do you have for orthopedic surgeons and orthopedic surgeons in training? Um, I don't know if it's advice or not, but what I always say is, is remember that we have the best job in the world. We get to do arts and crafts in our pajamas with our friends, at least if you're doing it right. And yes, there are definitely days where the gremlins in the hospital are bumping your cases for a nonsense neurosurgery thing. And there are days where everything seems to go wrong. But at the end of the day, you have the best job in the world. So go have so much fun with it. Awesome. Very cool. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Humbert. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today. Um, and I hope you and your family really uh, stay safe during this pandemic. Thank you so much. This has been an absolute blast. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the She Can Fix It podcast with Dr. Casey Humbird. Please subscribe to our podcast to show your support. We are on Twitter and Instagram at She Can Fix It Pod. We are also on the web at SheCanFixItPod.com. I want to take this time to thank my editor and co-producer, Andrea Venny Kirk, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Thank you so much for listening, and please stay safe.